Introduction. Why this book? We are not alone. Good people will fight if we lead them. So said Poe Dameron in Star Wars. The kids have it right. It's a climate emergency. It is not a drill. Most scientists view 1.5 degrees Celsius of global warming from pre-industrial levels as the temperature we should not exceed if we wish to keep the world's biological and ecological systems functioning largely as they have during the flourishing of our species over the past 10,000 years. 1.5 degrees Celsius is also the point at which scientists worry that natural systems could spiral out of control in feedback loops and tipping points. The Arctic tundra releasing methane, the loss of krill in the Southern Ocean, the desertification of the Amazon rainforest, which already looks like it is starting to emit CO2 instead of absorbing it. These feedback loops threaten to knock our one and only planet off its stable sweet spot for thousands of years and maybe even permanently. Our one and only planet. Here's a short, sobering reminder of how late in the game it is. If we merely let the fossil fuel machines that are already on this planet live out their natural lives, they'll produce enough emissions to take us to 1.8 degrees or so. This is why there are advocates for retiring the heaviest and dirtiest emitters first, the coal plants. But even if we retire them early, which we didn't commit to at Glasgow COP26, we are still on track for more than 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming. This is a climate emergency and it will only become increasingly urgent to radically reduce emissions as time goes on. Any fossil fired machine, your cars and kitchen stoves included, bought after today, it doesn't matter when you read this, the statement is still true, is incompatible with a one and a half degree Celsius world. We need to get the production of clean energy options up to scale as soon as humanly possible and try our best to ensure that every new machine brought into existence is a zero carbon machine. Whether it is your car, water heater, stove, gas heater, or the local power plant. This means pretty much all of the machines will need to be electric and our electricity will need to be generated by renewables perhaps not in Australia, but around the world, also perhaps by nuclear. It is urgent, and it is only going to get more urgent. We've just witnessed the 26th attempt at international climate ambition, COP26, and it wasn't enough. We need faster action. I haven't met the political party anywhere in the world that is moving at the pace we need to. We need to look at every opportunity for speeding up the transition to clean energy, whether that be politically or personally. You'll learn in this book that the no bullshit way to speed this switch up is to electrify everything. Why me? I grew up in Bardwell Park beside a golf course and a nature reserve on a stream that might be called a tributary of Woolite Creek. Then it was Sydney Southwest. Now in a city more than double the size, it is grouped with nearby suburbs under the moniker of Inner West. My mother was an artist. Half of our house was her studio and she painted and did etchings of Australia's landscapes, waterways, flora and fauna. She was half Mary Poppins and half David Attenborough. My father was a professor of textile engineering, a practical man who also built our house and maintained all of the machines in it. He was half Chevy Chase, half Henry Ford. Mine was a great childhood. We had more than enough of everything, especially adventures, as my mother would put pins on the map of the national parks and wetlands we should visit, and my father prepared the vehicles and camping equipment needed to get there. There wasn't any religion in the house other than Attenborough, documentaries, so you might call my parents' relationship a match made in the heavenly places of Australia. I'm writing this book now as a citizen recently returned to Australia after spending two decades in the US. I am a newcomer to the contemporary Australian climate debate, having only observed it from afar for the past 20 years. 
In the US, I have been heavily involved in energy data and in the energy research and development sector, including building successful technology companies, and some not so successful ones, in wind, solar, natural gas, hydrogen, energy storage, and heating, ventilation, and cooling. I am broadly familiar with all energy technologies, have a background in both engineering and physics, and have modelled household, state, national, and international energy systems in great detail, including for the US Department of Energy. I wrote this because I love Australia. I love her wild lands and exquisite yet fragile flora and fauna. And I believe emphatically that Australia has a leading role to play as the world addresses climate change. I believe that this will benefit all of Australia's citizens as well as Australia's environment. I am writing this of my own volition. I have no ties or vested interest in the Australian energy economy, only an interest in our land and our people. I earned two degrees in engineering in Australia. The first was a Bachelor of Science in Metallurgical Engineering from the University of New South Wales. The second, a Master's in Civil Engineering from the University of Sydney. My first industrial job was on the Rodden Bar line of the steel rolling mill in Newcastle. My second job was at a Camalco recycling smelter in Western Sydney. I was a co-op scholar. My degree was paid for by Australian industry, and I am no stranger to coal, steel, aluminium, and the extractive realities of Australia's export industries. I worked on products in post-consumer waste recycling before moving to the US to get a PhD at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. The Australian Public Service is politically cautious in its climate recommendations, understandably so given the decapitations that happen to people who speak up on the issue. In the absence of career public servants, it has become the domain of think tanks, politicians, consultants and corporate Australia, who for the large part represent their interests and give anything but an unbiased view. The Australian Renewable Energy Agency, ARENA, models lots of things very well, but has to stop short of picking winners, lest to be seen as political or as showing favouritism. By not picking winners, it continues to support ideas that keep fossil fuels going, instead of ending their use completely. For this reason, the conversation about climate change is typified by fear-mongering about jobs and costs, and rarely looks 10 years out at the big trends and even bigger opportunities. Brave individuals such as Ross Garno and Tim Flannery have added some optimism and urgency to the case, with books and concepts such as the energy superpower entering the public lexicon. This is the right direction to travel, and now we need even more detail to bridge the imagination gap of the average politician and to paint a picture for the average punter of how it is going to be better than okay, maybe even great for them. Policy in Australia feels like it is set by opinion polls and election cycles, and it now feels we are permanently in election cycles. While our energy system is fundamentally a matter of long-term planning and infrastructure, governments are allowed to make vague commitments and intone that the market will fix it and that technology, not taxes, is the way forward. This is to shirk responsibility. The government's financing decisions critically influence infrastructure that will last 25 to 50 years. Government policy on extractive industries will determine the fate of the planet and our climate. We the people, or we the punters, deserve better, forward-looking policies, but we will only get them by demanding them. This book will help you to know what you need to write to your local member about and how you should vote on energy and climate issues if you care about your kids, your country, your environment, your finances. There was much noise around the 26th United Nations Conference of the Parties, or COP, known to most as Glasgow. Australia announced a less than ambitious commitment to net zero by 2050 and hinted at a contentless plan and roadmap to get there that was shrouded in much secrecy. By the time you get to the end of this book, you should be qualified to assess the ambition and reality of any politicians or political parties' plans to slow global heating. I present my opinion strongly here about the technologies and the approaches that Australia should take to lead the world in decarbonising a first world economy. I am convinced we have both the most to win and the most to lose. 
I also believe that through leadership and example, Australia could not only lead the world, but actually increase the ambition of the other nations to clean up their energy acts. Yes, Australia should be leading the US, trouncing the UK and Europe, partnering with China, helping Southeast Asia, and setting a shining example for everyone else. I started this book only a few days before Glasgow was set to begin. I'm finishing just after COP26 ended. I wrote a longer book on mobilising climate solutions targeted at the US president and policymakers, titled Electrify and published by MIT Press. It was well received in the US prior to COP26. I will borrow many of those ideas, but my focus here is on the Australian context and the peculiarities of Australian solutions. I was typing as politicians announced commitments that are insufficient to save our Great Barrier Reef. I was fighting frustration as world leaders used deceitful assurances and creative accounting to pretend we are on track. I was disappointed by the outcome of COP26, just as I was disappointed in the outcome of COP3, Kyoto, which was the first UN climate conference that motivated me to civil disobedience. I was part of a large group of cyclists that blockaded the Sydney Harbour Bridge on the eve of Kyoto to protest Australia's failure to commit to that agreement. We have failed 26 times to produce the necessary ambition through the UN COP process. Insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. People need a vision for climate success that they can gravitate towards, not a fear they recoil from. It needs to be a vision that engages citizens and with sufficient detail to calm their anxieties. Australia is poised to be the country that can most easily make this transition and show the world a positive success story. That is the gift that we could give to the world, leadership and vision, and an example of success that other nations and their economies can follow. The Australian government makes a lot of noise about using technology, not taxes, and letting the free market solve the problem. But the free market doesn't know what the limit should be on global heating. And on energy and infrastructure issues, the market is anything but free. For one thing, the free market has already built in subsidies for fossil fuels, whether they are tax breaks, direct subsidies to corporations, artificially low resource leases or low interest loans. The free market will not keep us to a 1.5 degrees Celsius target because it is not transforming the energy industry at the pace required. This is why wartime analogies are apt. Markets can be influenced by governments during wartime to produce the goods needed to win the war. We need to move faster than the market, and that means that governments must have an opinion and must work towards targets. At this point, technology, not taxes, and let the market do its work, are clearly code for further delay and inaction. This is not a communist screed. Markets are useful, and we should use the best ideas from all sides of the ideological aisles. But most of all, we should be guided by what science tells us we must do to avoid planetary calamity, that is, rapidly reduce our emissions. Hazy targets 30 years out are a delay tactic. We should have five-year plans and commitments and hold ourselves to them. It will take two decades to transform our energy economy. That makes the math simple. We must move aggressively and we must move now. The market is already moving by itself. We aren't standing entirely flat-footed, but we need to get to a sprint while our politicians still drunkenly amble. In this book, I use publicly available energy and economic data, along with analysis tools developed in partnership with the US Department of Energy to fill in the Australian imagination gap. We can succeed much faster than you have been told. It cannot happen without aligning public policy with private industry, the Australian household, and it very likely necessitates partnership with the financial sector. Australians are known for their solidarity in the face of adversity. Our RSLs, our surf lifesaving clubs, and our volunteer bushfire brigades are testament to our capacity to solve problems together as a community and as a country. 
Now is the time to unify our country's approach to climate change with the same old-fashioned dedication and hard work. A human generation is often approximated as 20 years. We have one generation to do this job. What's ahead in this book? In Chapter 1, The Luckiest Country, I'm going to introduce you to the fundamentals of why Australia has the luckiest, easiest, and almost certainly most economically beneficial pathway to decarbonise and get to net zero emissions. Electrification is a vaccine for climate change, and just as with COVID, Australia should go hard and go early. In Chapter 2, Urgency and Emissions, I'm going to be brutally honest about our emissions situation, locally and globally, and why action needs to be much faster than you have been led to believe. Science implies we cannot beat 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming unless we move faster than the free market. In a bar fight between science and the free market, the free market might win, but science will still have been right. It's delusional to think we can get this done on time without designing and influencing the market with incentives, mandates, rebates and subsidies for the solutions that science shows are right. In Chapter 3, Energy, I'm going to lay out the Australian economy in terms of its energy flows, which will help frame the conversation about how we get from here, fossil fuel dependence, to there, fossil freedom. In Chapter 4, Australia's Energy Options, I will introduce you to the things that will and won't get us through this critical energy transition. In Chapter 5, Electrify Almost Everything, I'm going to build my core argument that you need to forget the hype about hydrogen, lose the idea that everything will run on biodiesel, ditch delusions about carbon sequestration and negative emissions, and instead focus on electrification as the solution. Electrify our homes, electrify our vehicles, electrify our businesses, electrify our industry, electrify agriculture, electrify Australia. In Chapter 6, Cheap and Getting Cheaper, I'll show you the inexorable trends that are the evidence that we will all benefit enormously from the falling costs of our electric climate solutions. In Chapter 7, Electrifying Our Castles, I'm going to show you why electrification is going to save you a lot of money and that we are about to undergo the largest wealth transfer in history from traditional providers of energy to traditional consumers of energy. In Chapter 8, Crushed Rocks, the export economy, we'll see why Australian industry and exports can make a huge contribution to the global energy transition while generating far more value and income than our existing fossil fuel exports. In Chapter 9, Why Politicians and Regulations Matter, we will look at things we've done right on policy and things we need to do to enable this transition to happen, and to happen at the lowest cost and with the lowest friction. In Chapter 10, Financing Fossil Freedom, we will look at the enormous importance of finance, both the cost of finance, but critically also the access to finance. These questions strike at the structural decisions that we can make that determine who wins economically with electrification. In Chapter 11, So Long and Don't Kill All the Fish, we will reflect that it is possible to address climate change while still screwing up some other aspects of our magical and beautiful continent and planet, and suggest that we should go forward boldly but mindfully. Finally, in Chapter 12, An Abundant Australia, we will peek at the future that is already happening and remind ourselves that Australia's clean energy future can be abundant and improve all of our lives. Mm -hmm.